Welcome to Bookaholics, the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking's podcast series dedicated to books. In this series, we introduce you to some recent and relevant books, our own books, and obviously classic books that we just can't stop talking and teaching about. My name is Christoph van Houten, and in this episode of Bookaholics, I am joined by Edward Baring to talk about his latest book entitled Converts to the Real, Catholicism and the Making of Continental Philosophy, published in 2019 by Harvard University Press. Hello, Edward, and welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Christoph. It's our pleasure. Now, Edward, considering that here at Bookaholics, we always have the pleasure and the honor of talking to the author of the books we talk about, we always start by giving the person who actually wrote it the chance to describe what their book is about or what their book intended to be about. So would you mind sharing with us what it was you hoped to tell the readers? Yes, great. So, I mean, this is a book about um, how phenomenology moved around Europe, especially. So I start from the fact that in the mid 20th century, um, phenomenology, phenomenology is everywhere. It's in France, it's in Czechoslovakia, it's in Poland, and Italy, um, in South America as well. And this is kind of surprising because, um, you know, at this stage, it's not phenomenological works aren't translated very well. And, you know, philosophy is hard, but philosophy in another language is really hard. Um, so, um, not only is it a kind of a, in a foreign language, it's in German, and we must remember this is just after World War II. Um, and that is surprising that it's a German philosophy that should have such wide international resonance. And finally, because it's, it's, um, it's a philosophy that the main proponents didn't do very much to promote its um, international reception. So, you know, Husserl lived eight miles from the French border, but he only lectured in France once. Um, and, you know, Heidegger, I, I'll put this in a, as a, uh, plug for my university. He was he was meant to come to um, America in 1964 to lecture at Drew University, um, and at the end he decided he couldn't do that. Um, so that kind of suggests how you know, little interest they had in supporting the work. So the question is, why does this philosophy um, uh, spread so quickly around Europe? And the one of the as I did my research, that the answer that came out is um, Catholicism. And then there's also a strange answer, because when we think about phenomenology, that we think about the major canonical figures, Heidegger, Sartre, de Beauvoir, perhaps Derrida, um, these are people that don't, you don't think of them as having connections to Catholic thought. And in fact, many of them um, were emphatic about um, their atheism. Okay. So this also then posed a problem. And um, the, the problems that I find interesting, thinking about the ways in which it traveled and what the impact of that um, history is on what we know today as phenomenological thought. Mm. So how, how did you come up with this idea? Because if, if one thing came to my mind whilst I was reading, then it was that this was a rather a niche context. I studied in Leuven and you talk about Leuven and I wrote my PhD in Rome and a decent chunk of my research was on neo-scholasticism of the 1930s. So I personally found myself in rather familiar territory, but I was and I still am convinced that my research pathway was not very representative to others, let alone mainstream one. And so um, I don't think it's it's a lot of people who go there in all these different places and to combine them. So that that really got me thinking and, and I really would want to know how you came to this idea. 
Great. Well, um, so my first book was on Jacques Derrida. It was uh, I was very lucky enough to go to be able to be one of the first people to go to the Derrida archives, mm. both in Irvine, UC Irvine, and in Caen, in France. Um, and I wasn't, you know, particularly interested in uh, our Catholic thought at the time. Um, but I went to his archives. I took lots of notes. I came back and tried to start thinking through um, the things I had found. And in uh, my notes, it, I kept bumping up against Catholic thought, figures who I hadn't heard of before, people like René Lassène, Simone Veil, Gabriel mm -hmm. Marcel. Um, and when I went back to the archives uh, um, a year later, just to, to, to continue research, um, I realized that everywhere I'd stopped was an essay on atheism or on God or on various forms of theology. Um, and so it became one of the central um, themes of my first book, the way in which Jacques Derrida, as a young man studying in Paris in and in Algeria, in fact, engaged with Catholic thought. Mm. And it occurred to me that if Jacques Derrida was engaging in public thought, not in a way that necessarily made him Catholic, uh -huh. um, I think, you know, he, you know, he rightly distances himself from Catholic thought, but in a way that was enormously important on the development of deconstruction, um, that I thought, if he's, um, who else might be engaged in this this whole world that I'd not heard of before? Mm -hmm. um, and so when I started this new book, I, I started to look at the um, Catholic engagement with phenomenology, and suddenly it was everywhere. Mm -hmm. Everyone looked, you know, uh, first texts, first articles, books, translations, and so on. And so it was, uh, that was my path into this story. Mm -hmm. Now, before investigating your book a little bit more, I have to say that there is one thing that I need to get out of my heart or out of my chest first. And in fact, there is something that somewhat bothered me whilst reading your book. It's a personal thing, but I think it's also interesting for, for, for other people who might touch upon your work. Now, you start your volume by referring to what I consider one of the most idiotic things of the past century, maybe. And that's the theory of the great divide between analytic and continental philosophy. Now, how I read it is that you never clearly take a stand on this theory, and that's fine. But after you mention this divide, you immediately start talking about phenomenology. And I think it's never clear if you take phenomenology to be synonymous of the continental philosophy that stands in the opposite opposition to analytic philosophy or not. So sometimes it seems that you do, and other times it seems that you don't. You, for example, also mention existential phenomenology or existentialist phenomenology. And so sometimes it seems that you consider phenomenology to be what one could understand as continental philosophy in its opposition to analytical philosophy, and then other times you don't. So maybe it, it would be good, especially for me, but maybe other people could be, could be interested in that as well, is how you stand on this issue. Great. Well, thank you. It's a, the, I mean, I settle on it because um, the way in which the term continental philosophy draws attention to this enormous expanse oh. of uh, different people working in different countries, reading some of the same texts um, and developing ideas in some ways very parallel ways. I think you're right that kind of the, the idea of the opposition, philosophically speaking, I think is um, pernicious and... Um, stops uh, um, some really important, interesting conversations from developing. 
But I think sociologically speaking, that especially in America, there is a divide between people who see themselves predominantly as continental philosophers and people see themselves as predominantly um, analytic philosophers. And that distinction has, you know, has profound social and institutional effects. Um, you can tell a kind of a journal that would be, you can tell very quickly a journal whether it is continental analytic. Um, and, you know, this, I've read a recent dissertation um, or by a guy called Jonathan Strassfeld about the history of phenomenology in America. He talks about kind of the way in which over the 1940s and 50s, phenomenology became to be a kind of internal other to uh, American philosophy with um, significant effects on what philosophy meant. So as a kind of a sociological distinction, I think it makes a lot of sense and it describes something that's um, uh, helps us understand what's happening in um, uh, 20th century philosophy. Philosophically, I think it can be a really, as I say, a pernicious thing. Mm -hmm. Now, whether um, continental philosophy, because it was formed as a kind of an insult, um, you know, the idea is that, you know, uh, all you need to know about this stuff is is it's happening in France and Germany, and so you, can know, you know how to avoid it. Um, <laughs> uh, it's the like all sort of insults, it, there is no real major um, engagement with the content of phenomenological thought. Mm -hmm. And um, it also tends to be a grab bag of different ideas, you know, critical theory, um, phenomenology, existentialism, forms of Marxism, perhaps Thomism sometimes is added to that list. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't make sense, I don't think, as a kind of a, um, when you move beyond a kind of sociological analysis. And, and I think the same is true of analytic philosophy. I think analytic philosophy overemphasizes the kind of methodological coherence um, and unity of the group of people who call themselves analytical philosophers. So it's more the kind of the, the fact that this name indicates this massive geographic diversity that I find interesting. And I think that that geographic diversity is predominantly expressed by phenomenolo phenomenology and its existential sort of offshoots rather than critical theory per se, although that's changed recently. Okay. No, it, 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 I agree that, that philosophically speaking, it makes no sense. But on the other hand, it's quite interesting. You call it sociologically interesting. I would call it historically or history yeah. of philosophy interesting. Yeah. But for, for the rest, I think, it, if anything, it, it, it makes one stop to philosophize. And because philosophy is never just reading one type of books. It's, it's yeah. always about just reading what people have written on that topic, wherever they come from, uh, philosophically speaking. So, I mean, so yeah. I mean, in some ways, it speaks to one of the, kind of the issues. I, I think philosophically speaking, it, that one would, could learn so much if people um, read more across this apparent divide. Mm. But if this divide is created at least you know um institutionally and and part of the book is one of the lessons of the book is just quite how important institutions are at directing people's attention to read certain things and ignore other things that allows them to deal with some ideas in a rigorous um uh um a full and sympathetic way and whereas to deal with others cursorily and um in a kind of dismissive way yeah and those institutions oh exist and uh, um, you know they still have not completely um, not totalizingly but uh, they have that effect on the way in which we do philosophy today mm -mm. No, I think it's quite interesting because indeed your book does that 
and but but not on a philosophical uh, topic, I think, but but on a religious topic. So it shows how atheism couldn't survive without this form of religious philosophy. And then on the other hand, you also didn't have the religious philosophy if you haven't this atheist or this this phenomenological philosophy. So you need one. Yeah, you you need one for, to to let the the other spread, and then it it goes vice versa. Because you were looking into the atheist Derrida, and you found Catholic philosophy in of the same time. And I think you can say the exact same thing about continental and analytical analytical philosophy. You can you can look at Derrida again, and then find all kinds of interesting things that have been said, or are, are people are working about in, in analytical philosophy as well. So. But, but yeah, that, so thanks for, for clearing that, that up. And, and let's change topic to something that didn't bother me. <laughs> so that, now, the title of your book is uh, Converts to the Real. And I found it very interesting that you had the courage to use the concept of conversion in this philosophical context. Now, the converting aspects of philosophy it's multiple possible meanings in the philosophical context that, for example, of a philosophical calling or that also philosophy requires to try and convince people. So converting them, as it were, to one's understanding and often failing in doing so. So all of this is all too happily and uh, forgotten. So would you like to share a bit more on the importance of philosophical conversion in your book, please? Yes. So, I mean, I think this is something that somewhere where intellectual historians, and I'm an intellectual historian, have something to add to philosophical conversations. So one of the jokes, if I go to a philosophy conference, there's always somebody who sits down and makes the joke about how I'm interested in, you know, what Heidegger had for breakfast. And uh, <laughs> Heidegger had for breakfast, and I'm sure if I found that out, it would be really important. But, uh, mm-hmm. but the joke is that, of course, this is irrelevant. And, you mm-hmm. know, Heidegger famously said of Aristotle that, you know, he was born, he thought, and he died. That's all you need to know about his life. Yes. But there are certain historical circumstances and contexts that are really important for how people think and the way in which they develop. You know, one I think is really important is, is pedagogy, how people teach what they have to teach, the ways, what um, values they're trying to inculcate, philosophical values they're trying to inculcate into their students, um, you know, the conditions of the job market. These things play a, an important role on how people think and how we should understand their thinking. But even more importantly is this kind of this notion of uh, um, uh, engagement with others, engagement um, that that philosophy in the vast majority of cases, I think, is involved in a, in a project of um, engaging with people who have very different views and trying to convince them of certain truths. Mm-hmm. Um, and. I use the term conversion because that was the way in which this particular project was articulated by the people in my story. You know, sort of Leon Noel, when he first reads Husserl, says he's a convert. There's this concern to convert modernity um, in some ways. There's worries about apostasy um, and so on. And when we think about this um, philosophy as a project of conversion, I think it, it is really interesting in two ways. One, I think philosophically, um, it brings our attention to a kind of attention in lots of uh, philosophical thought. If you have to um, embrace certain presuppositions of your interlocutor in order to be able to convince them of a truth they are not yet convinced of, then that suggests that there are kind of multiple voices at work, even in the most seemingly coherent philosophical texts, ones that can help you see how um, thought develops um, 
one of you know, the neo-scholastics I'm interested in, many of them were very concerned to, to speak in a language that modern, modern critical philosophers understood, um, and for their critics in the Catholic Church, to do so was to so fatally undermine um, a Catholic idea of philosophy as mm. to be basically atheism in waiting. Mm. So that's, that, that provides a model for thinking about how um, thought can develop in ways that aren't um, expected to start with. Um, and it also brings our attention to the way in which the, the movement from philosophical principles uh, through process of reasoning to conclusions is never determined in advance or never foreseeable in advance because otherwise these conversations would never happen. Mm. Um, and on the other side, I think that intellectual historians, um, it's important because it changes our understanding of what a context is. So part of the, the, the criticism I alluded to at the beginning of this answer was to, uh, that, you know, Historians want to reduce ideas down to kind of the conditions of their initial emergence, mm. therefore make them seem um, irrelevant to us who live in a different situation. Um, and <clears throat> but if we think about a kind of a context is already um, as intellectuals always trying to reach other people to engage with people from a different point of view, we realize that context is already in some ways divided. Um, that ideas are always trying to escape um, a particular context. And that I think helps us um, think through these sort of, you know, these perhaps um, contradictory tasks. One is to understand the moment of the ideas are being formulated, but also to understand how they still have a force um, in different contexts, and especially in our own context today, why they can still grab us and make us think um, and make us change our mind. And so in that way, I think conversion is really central to um, what I, um, the type of work that I do um, in this book and, and elsewhere as well. Now, as you already mentioned, the intention of the book is to tell the story and the importance of Catholic thought itself, the international academic network it had created, and how both aided in the propagation of the philosophical current known as uh, phenomenology on the European continent in the first half of the 20th century. Now, you claim in your book that Catholicism is apparently only of marginal appearance in most countries, but that it played an outsized role in the diffusion of phenomenology. Now, I'm wondering if, if this isn't a little bit of a caricature, or at least a, a version of, of some type of modern bias against religion. Your book clearly uh, evident makes evident that all great thinkers of the past century did all have close encounters with Catholicism, or at least with Christian thinkers. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I, I would probably push back and say all great thinkers, but certainly a large, a much larger number than one would expect. Mm. Um, one can trace back um, really profound, robust connections to Catholic thought. Um, so, yes, I, I do want to push back against the marginal uh, question of Catholicism, that it's, uh, um, it appears to us because we have... Uh, um, because we have kind of in some ways secularizing glasses that cuts out much of these larger um, networks of Catholic thinkers and focuses on key figures who um, repudiate their relationship 
um, if there is one to Catholicism. But I think marginal, the marginality question is still an important one. Firstly, because it was really important for the people at the time, especially for neo-scholastics. So the neo-scholastics, some places they were quite central. In Poland, um, neo-scholastics had relatively central philosophical positions. But in most places, they felt very marginal. Um, you know, off, in France, often they had to be in Belgium because of the, um, uh, uh, the expulsion of um, religious orders at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and the same is true for you know, the Jesuits in Germany who were also expelled and then so they set up bases in Austria, Switzerland and uh, the Netherlands. So some of these are, are, are literally marginal and they feel very marginal. They see themselves as being out. So they're one of the, the motives for engaging with modern thought is to try and assert their own importance, to re try and enter a conversation they feel they're excluded from. And so there are these you know, moments when you know, sort of Agostini Gemelli, who is one of the, the, the founders of the Sacred Heart University in Milan, you know, he gets, uh, um, he goes to 1924 uh, World Congress of Philosophy and he, you know, he gets applauded at the end of his speech. And this is, you know, gets written into neo-scholastic law for decades afterwards, that, you know, the, the positive view, because they were so rare. Uh. But at the same time, you no, know, um, so neoclassicism, I think, generally is relatively marginal. And you know, the other example is in Germany. So, in some ways, in Germany, it's less marginal because you have neoclassics in state universities, um, special chairs set up for Catholic philosophers. But if you read how other philosophers talk about these Catholic chairs, they're very derogatory. Um, very, they say, you know, so we don't want to want these Catholics here. We no serious philosophy would really have anything to do with them. We have to put up with them because of state laws. Uh -huh. Do you, this is just something that that just comes to my mind. Do you think that it could have been that these Catholic philosophers went for phenomenology exactly because it was a German uh, phen uh, phenomenon and also because their Protestantism was stronger and we, we were in the midst of the, of the modernity debate between Catholicism and Protestantism in the beginning of the 20th century. I think those are absolutely crucial contexts. It's, it, it's both kind of the modernism debate, which, which hits right at that, the moment when um, uh, Catholics really start to embrace phenomenology um, and many of those figures who embrace phenomenology are kind of at the edge, um, uh, potentially not actually censored, but worried that they might be. Uh -huh. That so, and it's a way of gaining authority by saying, look, these mainstream philosophers are saying something similar to us, and we can, um, we, you know, we can show that our ideas have validity in the modern world. But I think the other one is that the, the the philosophers who the Catholic philosophers who were more important, well, they were, you know, they were in some ways they weren't marginal in their in their national systems, but they were marginal in the church. And you know, mm -hmm. maybe a good example of this is Edouard Leroy um, in France, who is, you know, at the Collège de France, um, but he's a Bergsonian. Um, his work is placed on the index of prohibited books. He's, you know, the, his success. Um, is uh, um, in the national context makes him actually marginal in the Catholic context, okay. and that's sort of two different forms of marginality. You know, a marginality of of neoscholastics who are kind of in some ways the nearest thing that the Catholic Church has to a philosophical orthodoxy, although of course it doesn't have a philosophical orthodoxy. Okay. And the um, these other philosophers who are much more central, you know, people like Armando Carlini, who's rector of the University of Pisa, who's a explicitly Catholic philosopher, um, 
it's the relationship between the two of them. What I want to suggest is that, you know, one of the ways, you know, phenomenology was moved around the country, around Europe by networks of neo-scholastics, but it didn't have an uh, outsized impact upon uh, um, the type of philosophy that people are uh, in the main state institutions of Italy, France, uh, Spain, and so on, until it was picked up by these other Catholics who were marginal in the Catholic Church, but not marginal in their um, in, in, in their home countries. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, because Mercier he became cardinal, so yeah. th- there's there's also then his marginality became was elevated, and but maybe that's that that that's where it falls in into your story as well. He he became marginal within the philosophical community at the moment he became cardinal again. So well, it, it, it kind of turned on its head. When he became cardinal. But, but in some ways, he's interested. He's publishing in the uh, Scholastique de Philosophie in French, and he sort of wants to engage with, uh, uh, and this is, you know, it does, this is one of the most important French language Catholic philosophical journals, um, but it's been published in, in Belgium. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Belgium has obviously has a different, um, uh, you know, is a, a, a different academic context. You, you mean, you have the Catholic University in Leuven. Um, which is, you know, one of, one of the most important uh, universities there and has enormous authority. But when you look at France, you know, where's Maritain teaching? He's teaching at the Institut Catholique mm-hmm. because the space to um, talk about Thomism in uh, um, state universities is is much more constrained. Mm-hmm. True, true. Now, staying close to the, the question we just discussed you conclude your book and i think this is a good conclusion for our talk as well you so you conclude your book by saying that continental philosophy is haunted by religion it either is considered as something that needs to be exercised or that needs to be mined but it seems that they and we here uh, on the continent simply that we can't hide from it from this religiosity what do you make of this how do you intend this consideration to be understood and how would you judge it, especially if we consider ourselves living in a highly secularized world? Right. Well, so I think this is you know, one of one of our, what I want to be one of the most important contributions of the book. Um, so I'm not a religious person myself, but mm-hmm. the more I've um, engaged with sort of ver- religious folk or various strikes, the more um, it seems to be an enormously rich resource for thinking about problems um, that face us today. And I think there is just this historical fact that however much we might want to blind ourselves to it, that it has been far more influential in shaping the way in which we think and shaping many of the um, uh, ways of thinking, concepts we use than we are normally um, uh, willing to give it credit for. and I think this is, you know, very important for, you know, both philosophically speaking, but also historically, to um, think through these heritages in order to um, provide a way of criticizing and thinking what often we take to be neutral. Mm-hmm. We often take, um, you know, secularism to be kind of a neutral. Of course, you know, there are different forms of religion, and there's a kind of uh, there's a kind of a secular neutrality in the center. Um, But what I want to suggest is that actually much of what we see, at least as secular philosophy, um, has these very intense um, heritages in religious thought. And I think what that does is it leads us to an argument that we can't think of 
um, the secular as being simply neutral, mm. um, but rather kind of emerges in particular religious discourses, um, often religious, emerges in religious discourses and connected to particular ones. So there's in some ways there's a Protestant secular, there's a neo-scholastic secular, <laughs> there's a Christian idealist secular, mm. um, and that doesn't mean that they are crypto-religious, that mm. you know, some, you know, maybe one could take the point of view that maybe those religious discourses were bound to fall apart. Um, that's certainly a view one could take. Um, uh, or maybe they, they lead necessarily to this sort of you know, secularization. You know, Christianity is, the, is the, the religion of the sort of deconstruction of uh, religion. Mm. Um, but whatever stance one takes on that, I think we need to pay attention to the uh, um, the fact that there are these robust conceptual and historical connections. And what that does, I think, is it also allows us to look to religious thought, whatever one's own confessional or religious convictions are, and find really rich and important resources for um, thinking with today. Okay. Thanks so much for this, Edward. There are still so many aspects about your book that we weren't able to discuss. But for those, I greatly advise people to have a closer look at your book. Much, much, not much has been written about these aspects of European intellectual history. And so it was darn time for a book like this. So for those who have the interest and the time, Edward's book is called Converts to the Real, Catholicism and the Making of Continental Philosophy. It was published in 2019 by Harvard University Press. Thank you again, Edward. Thank you very and much. And thank you all for having been with us for another episode of Bookaholics. My name is Christoph van Houten, and I hope you will tune into also one of our further episodes. Goodbye and thank you.